My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and I uh, wasn't intending to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, in 2019, we gathered a little over 52 times to worship the Lord and to be fed from his word. We've seen three baptisms. We've seen our membership almost double. We've seen our attendance increase. We've seen, I think I said three baptized. We've seen almost 100 turkeys given away. We've seen the gospel shared countless times. Encouragement been given from the word for those in our community countless times. We've seen several babies born. It's been a, a beautiful year for us. As we recount all the blessings that we have, I really want to just encourage you to, to, to do that with me. And let January really be a year of us reflecting on the grace that God has given to us and the path that he has brought us through. And then just a year, of our month of hope as we consider what he'll do in the coming 12 months and through his people here in Hagerstown through all eternity. It's just been a blessing to walk with you guys the last 52 weeks. It's a blessing. It's a privilege to be able to call myself one of the pastors here. So thank you for that. Uh, This week, we actually begin with a new year. We begin a new sermon series. The sermon series is is entitled, Who's Your One? Who's Your One? If you look in the seat back in front of you, you'll notice a little uh, card. It's more of a bookmark, and it has a perforated portion. On that, there's a place where you can write the name of somebody who does not know Jesus. On the second part of that, the longer, pe- uh, longer period, there is a uh, longer portion, rather, there is a, a piece that has um, several Bible verses along with a place to write a name again. And so we'll talk, I'll give you some more instructions with that, but I want you to go ahead and grab one of those and have that with you. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. We'll read together verses 18 to 22. If you would, just have that, uh, that, that bookmark with you as we walk through the scriptures again this morning. In case you're wondering what they look like, you can't, you're having a hard time identifying one. This is the card I'm speaking of. And there's actually several of them located in, the, uh, in front of the giving boxes toward the back of the room. And so if you want to check those out. So we jump into our series this week. I want to say this right at the beginning. The first followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. The first followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. In fact, it was actually a derogatory term. It was a derogatory uh, name given to people that were outside of the faith that would call Christians little Christs. They weren't trying to encourage them. They weren't proud of them. They didn't think much of them. In fact, they thought little of them. And we see that in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. As a matter of fact, you might be shocked to know that the word Christian, my son reminded me of this this week, it's used three times in the whole Bible. The word Christian is used three times in the whole Bible, and yet oftentimes we, in the 21st century, that's how we'll refer to one another, but that's only used three times, and that's neither here nor there, but it's something that's good for us to make an observation and to notice. But one word that is used to describe those who we would call Christians is the word disciple. It's the word disciple. In fact, it's used in contrast 281 times, 281 times. As you think of the term Christian, as you think of disciple, and while they speak of the same people, don't you know that one is a far more terrifying and powerful word than the other? And you might say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the concept of a disciple exposes the fact that many who claim to be Christians are not actually disciples of Jesus. 
The concept of a disciple exposes the fact that many people who claim to be Christians are not actually disciples of Jesus. It's a well-known fact that a disciple uh, was and is an adherent or follower of a master, one commentary said. It's an intimate companion in some common endeavor, often learning and promoting a particular ideology or theology. Matthew can use the term to refer just to 12 apostles to, or clearly to a, a member of a larger group, but usually it refers to an unspecified number of followers who are more devoted to Jesus than the large crowds that often follow Jesus as well. And so the term disciple is a far clearer term. In fact, it's disturbingly clear. It, it, it determines for us or demonstrates for us who we have chosen to believe in and who we are dedicating our lives to, who we are following after. I want to go back and try to get really into what a disciple actually was. And so a few weeks ago, we, we, we looked at this idea of what a shepherd was. It was a bit of a foreign idea for us. And in a similar way, disciple is a bit of a foreign idea for us as well. So hopefully by the end of this passage, as we, by the end of this sermon, that we'll have a clear understanding of what it actually is to be a disciple. When Jesus refers, and call, refers to his disciples and actually calls them, what is he calling them to do? What do we observe them doing? Hopefully we'll have a clear understanding and we will not necessarily be, cease to call each other Christians, but that we will recognize that first and foremost we are called to follow Jesus and we are his disciples. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, we read of the account written by Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Jesus calling his first disciples. And so read with me there in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4. The Bible says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. There would not be any power revealed in my speech or my preparation in the amplification or in our assembling here together this morning, but that the word being spoken this morning, being read this morning by the power of the Spirit, that it would quicken and that it would correct and that it would encourage and that your people would ultimately be nourished by it. We'll be quick to give you the glory for these things. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, quickly, I just want to share this with you. There's three points that will, smaller points that we'll walk through, but they really support the main point. They flow out of the main point. And those three smaller points this morning are this. Jesus chose them. The disciples left all and the lost were found. So Jesus chose them. The disciples left all and the lost were found. And really, these are subjugated, they're under the main point. And the main thing that I, as your pastor, see in this passage and recognize that we need to know and be corrected in, and that is this, the primary call that Jesus gives to us this morning is to follow. The primary call is to follow. So in this past year, we've struggled with many things. We've planted a church, and all the things that go along with that, Many of us have picked up new tasks that we've not done before. We've maybe even read this, the scriptures for the first time in our entire lives. We've walked through scripture, Genesis to Revelation. 
We've began to journal. We've been leading in D groups. We've been attending life groups. We've been adopting and taking in foster kids. We've been preaching the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations and sending and giving. And all of these things, we feel like all these tasks God has called us to and their graces that he's extended to us and that when we receive, we're fed and nourished by them. But ultimately, none of these things are what God has called us to do. Not ultimately, not primarily. The number one thing that God has called us to do as disciples of Jesus Christ is to follow. To follow Jesus. Not to share the gospel. Not even to disciple. First and foremost, to follow. And so that's the, that's the big point for the morning. That's the big point out of the text. And I'd love to reserve that to the end and kind of shield you from it and then just set a trap and almost catch you in it at the very end of the sermon and, and, and draw your attention to this climax. I think it's best if we just get it out of the way in the beginning. For you to think about your life. Are you saying, Pastor, am I not to disciple? Am I not to evangelize? Am I not to give? Am I not to do these? Of course you are. But at the end of the day, if you think your job is done because you've done one or two or three or ten of those things, then you're sadly mistaken. We have been called to Jesus. And we've been called to follow him. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, by God's grace, we'll have a clear picture of that at the end of our time together. So Jesus says there in verse 19, follow me. Follow me. He told them that Jesus is calling us also to follow him. And though it may look different for us than it did for those in the first century, seeing the face of Christ, walking literally behind him as he stirs up dust, the dust actually getting on their clothes and even in their eyes and in their hair. It may look different for us. But yet we are still physically to follow Christ and spiritually we are to listen to him, to be taught by him as he speaks to us via his word. Along with this call to the disciples, to uh, Peter, and to Andrew, and to James and John, as we'll see in the next couple verses, along with that call, he does not issue an itinerary of the next three years or even of the rest of their lives. And though they would go through quite a bit, he doesn't tell them of much. None of, his, none of the details of their personal and individual assignments are given. Even his ideology or theology wasn't expressed at that moment. He invites them to follow himself. His main call for them was not to take action but or to do something. It was to sit at his feet and to learn. To sit at his feet and to learn. And they were to walk behind and observe every move that he would make. And they were to imitate him. And ultimately the goal in following was to become like the one whom you were following. That was the goal. To do one thing like him but to do all things like him. To be a, a follower was to imitate To be a disciple was to become like the one whom you had chosen. And yes, I said that you had chosen, but it was different. In this particular setting, Jesus, the Messiah, was choosing his disciples. Jesus is inviting his disciples to come after him. If you've received the invitation from Jesus to follow him, he desires that you also sit at his feet and that you learn of him, and that you follow him, and that you imitate him, and that ultimately you become like him, and that Christ be formed in you. As a pastor here, that's my desire, not just in my own life, first and foremost in my life, that I would be a disciple of Jesus. Truly that I'd be a disciple. That I would smell like him, and talk like him, and look like him, 
Not physically. I have, that'd be a struggle. But yet I want people when they see me, it's my desire that they say, this man is like his rabbi. And he is like his master. As your pastor, it's my desire that we see that in your lives as well. If we could look into the, the future and we could see that how we'll celebrate in 2021, how as we look around and we compare the snapshot of this morning to the snapshot of 2021, that we would see that it looks a lot more like Jesus in this room. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for myself. And there's almost a mystical nature to the process of becoming like Christ. As the Holy Spirit literally takes up residence in the life of a believer. And there's this, uh, that's the mystical and abstract way, but there's a concrete explanation to this process as well. How do we become like Christ? Well, we can see behind the curtain, as it were, and we can see how it is that God forms Christ in us. Jesus' disciples, they become like Christ because they watch Christ. They read of Christ. They read the words of Christ. They listen to his voice. Practically speaking, for us this morning, Jesus speaks through his word. His disciples, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are transformed as you hear Jesus speak, as his words echo off the pages of our scriptures. So this is the call for you this morning. We could shut it down right here, right now. Jesus is calling out, follow me. And will you do it? Will you follow Jesus? What is this all about? What are you asking me to do? Is this about money? Are you trying to get me to give more money? No. The question is, will you follow Jesus? Will you follow him? Beautiful thing. This week, we sat down as a family and we memorized Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is part of our reading plan. I hope that you also took advantage of that. It was a really cool thing. We got to talk about that verse and wasn't much in there. At first, when I looked at it, I thought, you know, this, there's no doctrine clearly revealed in verses 1 and 2. Like, we're not learning about the Trinity. It's not the transfiguration. We're not, we're not learning about uh, sanctification. It's, we're just learning about how Jesus sees a crowd. He goes up on a mountain, and when he sits down, his disciples come to him, and he opens his mouth, and he teaches them, saying, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. As I looked at that, and I thought about that, and the kids and I, we chewed on it for a few minutes. We kicked it around, and me and Sarah, we thought, you know what? Jesus is speaking to us. And this is how we're fed. This is how Christ is formed in us. This is how our minds are transformed. As we sit at the feet of Jesus, we don't run to be busy. We don't compile large lists of all the things that we've done to earn God's grace. We sit at his feet and we truly observe and we listen it enters into us, the Spirit of God quickens us and changes us. So here Jesus begins to speak directly to his disciples there. He opens his mouth and he teaches them, saying, what does he, what does he teach them? What does he say? Well, he goes on to, to preach the probably, uh, definitely the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. He preaches the Beatitudes there as his introduction This is the first sermon that we have recorded that Jesus speaks. And even today, disciples are still being fed and nourished and guided by his teaching. Over the past two millennia, 
There are many ways for us to access the, che- the teachings of Jesus in, in dynamic ways. And I want to just point out some practical ways as, as an under-shepherd here. How, how can I help you to be fed? How can I help you to encounter Jesus and follow him truly? Well, one of the ways would be what, something we've already referenced this morning. That's the reading plan. Every week it's available in the loop. And so I encourage you to grab a loop. Keep that in your copy of God's word and use that throughout the week. Of course, if you use digital scriptures, uh, there is a debate on whether they're, I'm just kidding, there is a digital copy as well. If it's not available on the website, it will be this week. So we can access, literally access Christ and his teaching as disciples through the word of God. And I would encourage you, not just say, yeah, I read the scriptures, but to intentionally read the scriptures. I don't want to stay long on this point, but I would say this. Most of us intentionally plan out our meals throughout the week. We know that we need them. And so we, and we say, we will be intentional. Not, I'll eat sometime this week. We say, I will eat three times a day. I'll eat five times a day, maybe. Some, some of you, maybe you only eat two. It is January, and so maybe you only eat one. I don't really know. But here's what I do know. We schedule our meals. Oftentimes, if you're married, you'll sit down with your spouse, and you'll say, this is what we're going to have on this day. This is what we're going to have on this day. This is what we're going to have on that day. Maybe you just go to Sam's Club and you buy a bunch of ramen noodle. Whatever you do, you plan to have a meal. I would encourage you to do the same thing, to, to think of reading God's word in the same way. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, how embarrassing is it? How un- unfounded is it that you don't read his word? In addition to the reading plan, we have the weekly messages. So I would encourage you, this is one of the reasons why it's vitally important for you to be committed to a local body to be regularly receiving a diet of God's word through the weekly message. And if there is a chance that you miss, I want to make this known to you, we have a podcast. Most all, if not all, I think most of our, of our, of our sermons from this past year are there. And they're not there to make me famous or anybody else that preaches here famous. That's not the point. That's not going to happen. We would wait a long time for that. The point of us having even a podcast is so that you can be fed. So I would encourage you, take advantage of that. Additionally, we have things such as life groups. Usually meet weekly. They try to, even in, the, even in the flu season, it becomes difficult, but they try to meet weekly and regularly to, to meet together, to study the scriptures and to encourage one another. D groups are a similar way, smaller groups, meeting regularly, quoting scripture together, holding each other accountable as they disciple one another and study the scriptures. And even book studies are going on amidst the church right now. I've learned of several throughout this past year where folks have gotten together throughout the week and have studied a book outside of scripture, but of scripture. Additionally, we have a resource table at the back. These are just a few ways that we can point you to to say, these are ways that you can grow as a follower of Christ. How can you follow Christ if you don't know what Christ says? It's incumbent upon us that we study what he has written to us. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you, I challenge you to take advantage of these opportunities. And as we read and study and meditate on the word, it becomes a part of us and it even rewires us. As as Romans says, it transforms us into the image of Christ. And as I said, the series we're beginning this morning, it, it is about evangelism. It is about evangelism. It's about intentionally sharing the gospel with the lost in our area, with the lost in your circle of friends and co-workers and neighbors. It's about telling the good news of Jesus Christ, that we have good news. We're sharing that with our neighbors. That's what we've longed for as a church in 2019, and we saw a good bit of that. And now in 2020, we want even more. 
So you say, well, why are we not talking about evangelism? Why, why do we stop on this point to say, oh, we must follow Jesus first. We must sit at his feet. Because that's the work, folks. That is the work. That's how we become disciples. Perhaps you're wondering, though, why in your life you've seen so few disciples made. Maybe that's the case. As you look over your life, you say, why have I seen so few disciples? Why have so few come to faith? Why not more? You're asking yourself. Humbly, offer this. Could it be that you have spent so little time with Jesus? I say that humbly and with care. I'll ask again, could it be that you have spent so little time with Jesus? You'd love to fulfill the commands of Matthew chapter 28, but you've not fulfilled the commands of Matthew chapter 4. It's hard to become a fisher of men if you have not followed Jesus. Jesus even said, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Notice in verse 19, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There again, he says it to James and John. To fish for men is a play on words. It's a connection to their previous occupation, right? It's a language that they understand. Jesus is using an analogy or a metaphor. It means to share the gospel and to see folks respond. To fish for men, right? And keep in mind, it's not a net. Right? It's a net. It's not a pole. We pour in our, our, the way that we fish. We, we use deception nowadays, right? We throw out a piece of bait and we try to trick them into, and then there's the bait and switch, right? It's not what's taking place here. They're casting a net. The difference is they're uh, rescuing them from the water into the frying pan and we're rescuing them out of the frying pan and into the arms of God, into the arms of Jesus. So it's a swooping call. It's not, it's not individual deception. Jesus is not implying that, that being a fisher of men involves anything seductive, deceitful, or harmful, one commentator said. Rather, he said, it's pointing out that just as fishermen try to gather fish from the sea, his disciples too will be trying to gather together other individuals who are willing to follow Jesus in radical obedience. There's still a call to follow and there's a call to fish. There, there's no tension between the two. If you're like me, you're like, okay, you want me to, to sit at Jesus' feet. You want me to just read something. Don't you want me to, to build something or carry something or, or like smash something or take something? No, shouldn't I be fixing something? Isn't there, is there a tension here? There's no tension between the two of them. As a matter of fact, discipleship or, or being a disciple is really a coin with two sides. It's following and it's leading. Discipleship is following and it's leading. It's following Jesus, and it's leading other folks behind us. It's receiving from God, and it's giving to those around us. It's re- receiving, and it's giving. It's following, and it's leading. And remember, that is the primary takeaway for this morning. You cannot give what you do not have. You cannot take somebody where you've not been. You cannot give something to somebody that you've not received. When we get that wrong, it causes all sorts of problems. And so as you think about it, in a way I'll play a a doctor this morning and ask some questions. Talk about some symptoms in your life. And one of the symptoms that I've asked you is this. Have you noticed in your life, maybe even in 2019, that few disciples have been made? The question I asked and follow up is, is it possible that you've not spent enough time with Jesus? Another question I'll ask you is, do you become frustrated as you consider 
evangelism efforts and discipleship efforts, efforts in your life? Do you? I would ask you this. Is it possible that you are leading, attempting to lead folks to Jesus without following Jesus first? Or that these two are not balanced? If that's the case, if, if we tend to, to try to lead before we've followed, we experience burnout. We, we experience a, a, a walk, a, a, a faith that's unsustainable. It's a water pitcher can, trying to pour out water that it doesn't even have. Burnout, unsustainable. When we try to lead before we've followed. It leads to insincerity. When our own relationship with Jesus is suffering, we end up manufacturing a counterfeit reality. We build walls. We set up falsehoods. And we hide behind masks and barriers. Which creates further isolation in our own lives. It creates further frustration and further burnout, further destruction. And so as Christians, as followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must first follow, truly, and then lead. It also leads to misguidance. It's the blind leading the blind. When we've not followed Christ, when we've, when we've not spent time in his word, when we've not been nourished by it, then we have no direction and we cannot guide. And yet, that doesn't stop many of us. We attempt to do it either. I'm chief among them in this place. And yet it's impossible. Burnout and sincerity and misguidance will leave Hagerstown Church in 2020 in rubble. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must follow and then lead. There's been no following. There will be no fruit. You can't give what you do not have. And so if we just park it there just for a second. I want to say this. You lead others to Jesus out of the overflow of your time with Jesus. You lead others to Jesus out of the overflow of your time with Jesus. And so husbands, you cannot lead your, light, your wife into the presence of Jesus if you've not spent time with him. If you don't know the way, how can you do it? How can you do that with your children? Fathers, mothers, how are you to train your children up in the Lord if you are yourself are not walking in it? If you're not walking in the way, if you're not walking in righteousness, seeking the Lord, spending time at the feet of Jesus, as Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, how can you teach others to pursue him? Brothers and sisters, as we meet together weekly in D groups and in life groups and in impromptu coffee meetings, whatever you do for fun together, whether it be ping pong or working on a car. How are you to lead each other? How are you to disciple one another when you've not been discipled? And this isn't a time for us to lick our wounds and say, the church has wounded me, I've not been discipled. That's probably true. And not just in the last year, but in the last 20 years of your life. That's likely true. But moving forward, have you longed to be at the feet of Jesus? to learn and to grow and then to take what you have received and share. As part of his first teaching, Matthew records in Matthew chapter 6, 33, uh, a little bit more about this kingdom of God. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. I know we're just jumping into this passage. It's a couple of chapters ahead of where we're at this morning 
I want to help just quickly to give you a little bit of an understanding and answering two questions. What, first is this, what is the kingdom? What's he talking about? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. To seek the kingdom of God first would be that you first seek to allow Jesus to rule in your life. And the kingdom of God is much greater than you and your individual relationship with God. It's much greater than that, but it is that. It's no less than that. To seek first the kingdom of God is to allow Jesus to rule in your life. Our king is Jesus. And when we seek the kingdom of God first, what that looks like is the word of God informing us, the teachings of Jesus Christ guiding us. We submitting ourselves underneath of his leadership in our lives as we sit at his feet and he teaches us. When we do that, all of these things, Jesus said, all of these things will be added to you. What are these things? What are these things that he's talking about? He's speaking of the needs that we have, the daily needs in our lives. We each have needs in our lives. Need to, to be fulfilled or need to, to, to have our, our, our uh, nutrition given to us or whatever it is. A need to feel apart. A need to feel loved. And all of these natural desires that we have, if, we don't, uh, if they're not submitted under the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ in our lives, they end up leading us astray. And so oftentimes, before we seek the kingdom of God, we seek these things. Trying to fill a void in our lives trying to, to prove that we have value and worth and direction, that we are loved, or even to, to, to satisfy our, our, our needs to, to be important. We allow our needs to come before our seeking of the kingdom. But Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom of God. When you submit yourself to that godly, righteous ruler, all of your needs will be met. Every true need will be met. It's amazing that as a people, I'm never, never, I never cease to be amazed that we as a people can, can use so many different things to become idols in our own lives. As Christians, we've recognized that throughout the centuries, how so many even good things can be used as, 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 as idols in our lives. We, if you think about the Ten Commandments, I thought about this this week, we are so gifted in sin. We're so talented in sin that we can take the Ten Commandments and break the first commandment with the following nine. Think about that. That we can take good things that God has given to us, even his word, his commandments, his laws, and we can take those and use those to become a God in place of the God that he has called us to worship, the God who has given these things to us. If you think about it, the list could go on and on, but sex, drugs, alcohol, relationships, even theology, Good, right theology can be used and twisted in a way to where we have become the king in some sense. We have dethroned simultaneously Christ himself in our lives. And Jesus says, if you're to follow me, if you're to submit yourself to me, if you're to seek first the kingdom of God, then you will hear my words. You submit to them. And the first one is to follow him. This is an area where I've struggled using good and right commands of our Lord to bring myself security and value. Maybe you can relate. 2019 has been full of that. Repentance, as the Lord has revealed that to me, and yet, again, reaching for it. There's a temptation in my heart, and probably in yours as well, to view our evangelism and our discipleship efforts as the work, among other things. 
Have we shared the gospel this week? No, I haven't. And so therefore, my value has decreased. Or have I this week? Yes, I have. I'm wearing a suit jacket to church this Sunday because I'm somebody, right? We find our security and our value in whether or not that we have evangelized or not or whether we've done some good work. And this is sinful. This is prideful. We prioritize the the certain things that we think are valuable over our time with Jesus. And that's where we fall. And that's where we fail. And the simple observation, the story that we, we have relegated to children's church about how Jesus calls his disciples, we've forgotten it altogether almost. He says to us, follow me. So 2020, may that be a year where we follow Jesus truly. So that's the main thrust of this text. It's the main drive to follow Jesus and not to skim over that, but to really let it sink in, to learn from him. There are many other uh, truths that are given to us in this passage, and I want to look at three more of them quickly. There's some observations, and we'll make these observations into application. The first one is this, that Jesus chose his disciples. Point number one under our main point is that Jesus chose them. He chose his disciples. Look again at verse 19. Consider this, though. Picture this in your mind. If it helps, close your eyes. Peter and Andrew, hard at work, maybe not wearing shirts, working hard, blistered in the sun, maybe something wrapped around their head. Water's, the water is just a, a splashing around on the sides of the boat. The, the sun is beating down, reflecting. And they're hand over hand, they're pulling up the nets, hoisting them bit by bit into the boat. They're focused on the task at hand. Nothing else exists in their mind at that moment except the work at hand, fishing for fish. And they were good at it. This was their job. Yet cresting over the side of the hill, coming into view, not their view, because they're not looking, is Jesus the Messiah. He crests the hill. He walks down their way. He's not meandering. He's not walking to and fro. He's not looking for a fish and chips stand. He's walking directly to their boat, and they don't even see him coming. They don't see him. They don't recognize what's happening. They're not clamoring to be chosen by him. They don't even know that he's piecing together his dream team or his, his, his crew that he's going to use for the next few years. Pastor J.D. Greer, he, he, he helped me greatly, and I'm going to share what he shared with me through a sermon I listened to recently. He helped me to understand a bit of the culture of, of discipleship in, in, in the Jewish context. And so the first thing is this. If you feel free to take these down as notes. I'll, write, I'll, I'll read them quickly. But the first is this. All Hebrew boys went to Torah school starting at age five. So all Hebrew boys started at age five at the Torah school. And what they would do at Torah school is they would memorize portions, if not all, of the first five books of the Old Testament. They would, be, they would spend countless hours in, in, in those next five years learning and, and memorizing and meditating on scriptures. And then at the end of that five-year uh, five period, they're now ten years old, all the young boys, they knew the Torah. They were better students because of it. But the better students then would go on. They would move on to study the, the rest of the Old Testament, and moving into to poetry and some more history and even some prophecy. The ones who were not chosen to move forward, they would go home to work with their families. They would return to their father's businesses and, and get to work. Well, back to these boys who had moved on. At about age 17, if you wanted to go on and you wanted to make a career, maybe even through some counseling, they had said, we see something in you. There's something different about you. We think that you should make a career as some type of a spiritual leader, maybe a rabbi, 
or some type of a, a teacher, maybe a scribe. So they would be encouraged to, to move on. And at that point in time, if they had finished the second tier, the second phase, they would begin to search out their own rabbi. So they would no doubt have already known certain teachers that, of the law that they respected and wanted to even be like and emulate. So they would keep a short list through those seven years or so. And at that period in time where they were to, to branch out and to find their own rabbi and to go into the next level of their education, they would already know who they would be looking for. So then they would go to that rabbi and they would ask him if they could find him, if they could find one that they respected and wanted to learn from. They would ask if they could go to him and sit at his feet and that they could learn from him. The rabbi, the rabbi would examine you. He would check you over. He would already no doubt have known about you. Maybe he had already checked the draft. He knew the stats that each of these guys had, had and, and he would dis- determine who he thought would fit best in his group. Through a series of tests and questions, he would determine who was worthy to be his disciple. And then he would choose likely the smartest and most talented to follow him. The rest would have to go on to find somebody else or to return to their homes, to their family's business, whatever it was. Another reason that that, uh, Pastor Greer said was, another reason that the rabbis were so picky is that when they chose a disciple, they were choosing someone who they believed could become just like them. To, to not just know what they knew, but to do what they did. So for several years, these young disciples would follow their rabbis and they would imitate them in every way. And the goal of a disciple was to be like their rabbi. So this is, what, this is the context of this story. And yet Jesus is not following the story to the T. He appears on the side of the, the water there, and he calls out to these fishermen, and he says, follow me. He's not saying, hey, follow me. I know where we can get maybe the new McRib. It's back out. This is not what he's saying to them. He's saying, come and be my disciple. Learn of me. Follow me. I'll teach you what you need to know. By the way, these men weren't even looking for this. They'd found their occup- occupation. They'd found what, what they would do with their lives. And Jesus is interrupting that. So again, the normal way a disciple would be chosen was that the disciple would seek out the teacher and perhaps, maybe, the rabbi would receive you and choose you back. By the way, that would be a huge source of encouragement too. If you went to a rabbi, maybe the best of the best, and you said, hey, I want you to teach me. Will you allow me to follow you? Wouldn't that be such a boon in your confidence and an encouragement for you that week? As he says, I would love that. He would see something in you. Here's the thing. If you've been called by Jesus to follow him, you were not searching for him. You were minding your own business. You were lost in your sin. And he's come to you and he's called out and he says, follow me. And so if you would be encouraged that you would be recipro- that your, your advance would be reciprocated and that it would be received, how much more should you be encouraged that Jesus, that great rabbi, the Messiah, that he sought you out. Not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy, he reaches out. And so as you struggle through the beginning of 2020, maybe in your marriage or in your career or in your parenting or even in your work here through the church and how you serve, you need to remember this. 
that if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Jesus, that he chose you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He has chosen you. This is, the, this is what John 15, 16 says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He has chosen us. I want you to notice what he bases his decision on. We have to uh, kind of just look, zoom out and look at the greater context. And as we've seen, Did you notice that Jesus did not choose the best and most qualified men for the task? These guys were dropouts. These guys got flushed out a long time ago. And so maybe you're like me and you're feeling a little bit better about yourself now. Like, wow. If if Jesus would call these guys to come and serve him and to follow him, what does that say about us? These guys didn't make the cut. Likely didn't make it to the second tier. And undoubtedly, they weren't a part of the third. And yet Jesus comes to them. As he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, he sees two brothers. They're casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. They weren't students. They weren't leading disciples from another rabbi. Not all of them. What were they? They were fishermen. They were fishermen. And so Jesus is not seeking the best, the best to follow him. And he even asked the average and he asked the below average to follow him. And that's great comfort for me. I love what John MacArthur says about this text. He says that God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in, over in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. And he passed over Herodias, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. This is an invitation or perhaps a gentle correction. Stop making excuses as to why you can't serve the Lord. Stop making excuses as to why you're unable to fulfill what he's called you to do or even to bear fruit as a Christian. It's It's been said before, he doesn't need your ability, he requires your availability. Another good one you could write down, he says, is this, he doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Think about that. He doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. So has Jesus called you also? Has he? Has he chosen you to follow him? Do you hear his voice, as the scriptures say? If so, follow him. Follow him. So Jesus chose them. The second observation I want you guys to see as we move through this passage is this, that the disciples left all. The disciples left all. Look at verse 22, particularly of James and John's story. Immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. Something drastic happened in these boys' lives. They were leaving their nets at the sea. And that'd be similar to our carpenter, our contractor, leaving his tools, setting them outside of his truck in the parking lot of Home Depot. Right? I've got, I've got to go. It'd be like him leaving his truck there with the, with the keys and the ignition. They, they left more than their favorite fishing hole. When we see, oh, they're fishing. So maybe they left their bass boat there at their favorite fishing hole. No, this was their livelihood. They were leaving so much more than, their, than some best-kept secret. 
and all count and all the county, right? They were leaving their jobs, how they how they uh, they were leaving their future behind, how they provided for their family in the present. There's a huge change or shift in their priorities. It was evident in their lives. Here these guys are, these dudes, they're just minding their own business, literally. And up walks Jesus, and he flips upside down their lives. He engages them. He calls them. They're not looking for a change of a job or a shift in priorities, and yet Jesus chooses them, and they leave everything. Why does the Holy Spirit list these two things? They left their boat and their father. Most people reading this see that the boat represents our livelihood. It's the, it's the way that we take care of ourselves. And they gave it up. And they weren't being foolish. They were being obedient. God called them. And here the Holy Spirit says, hey, they left a lot of things behind, but they left their boat behind. On the second one, it says that they left their father. What does the father represent? Well, it, obviously it's our most significant human relationships. They set it aside. And they said, if, if Jesus is calling me to follow him, whatever it takes, I'm willing to give up. And you say this morning, is, is, is God calling me to quit my job? I hear the voice of Jesus. He's telling me to follow him. And I want to give in to that. I, want to, I do. I want to follow him. Do I need to quit my job and, and leave my family? Well, that's not necessarily what God is calling each of us to do. When following Jesus, there's nothing more important in our lives. Nothing takes precedent in our lives over the call to follow. So God may never call you to leave your, your hometown. He may never call you to leave your family or your job. But many of you he has called and he will call to do just that. Many of you have already given up family and friends and jobs and possessions for the sake of the gospel. And you do it willingly as we see these disciples doing. Some of you in the future will be called to leave your job and your home to serve as a missionary in a foreign land. Perhaps, and Lord willing, you'll be called to leave your family, maybe or the church family here at Hagerstown Church and to join a future church plant team. Who knows? Maybe as a single person, you'll give up an opportunity to take a job, to pursue some certain career, You'll give it to the Lord for short-term or long-term missions. You'll sacrifice the comfort of established relationships and you'll create new ones in a new city and a new location for the sake of the gospel. This is what we see taking place here. These disciples, they're not saying we're just going to carelessly and foolishly give away everything that we have and just walk away from all of it. No, they, when, when God calls, they count the cost. Whatever would be in the way is not in the way. Nothing takes precedent over that call. Let me say this to bring you some comfort. Following Jesus doesn't always require a change in location, but it always requires a change of priorities. Following Jesus does not always require a change in location, but it always requires a change of priorities. So the question that I would have as we make this observation that they left everything, just to ask, are you willing to leave it all? Is there something that you're holding back when you consider the things that the Lord could call you to? What, what holds you back? What hinders you? What's, what makes you say, I would if I could just 
get this taken care of. James and John set a wonderful example for us as they left everything. Are you willing to leave it all? The final thing that I want to point out to you is this. The lost were found. And we don't necessarily see it in this passage, but there's a promise, and it's as good as gold. We can take it to the bank. The promise that Jesus gives to them is, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says to them, if you follow me, follow me. When you do that, I will make you fishers of men. And so following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that you sacrifice your passion and purpose for nothing. That, you ex- that you, there's no exchange going on. It's just a setting down of, of everything that you know and enjoy in your life. That's not what he's calling you to do. Rather, he's calling you to exchange it. You see, the disciples had been fishing for fish, and they enjoyed that. That was their thing. Jesus says, I would love to exchange that. If you'll follow me, I'll exchange that occupation for another. Not not one that's meaningless, but one that's more meaningful. He exchanges it for one that is far greater, one that glorifies him and that brings us more joy. And so like the first disciples, we have been given a new occupation. We are apprenticing under Jesus. Jesus fished for men and so do his disciples. We can't, we can't avoid this part of being a disciple. It's, it's part of us. We sit at his feet. We follow him. We learn of him and then we go and we lead others. There's no such thing as being a non-reproducing Christian or disciple. It doesn't exist. How can it? If you are following Jesus, he said, I will make you fishers of men. It's a fact. It's a fact. John 15, 8 says this. This is is really sobering. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, that you catch much fish, we could say. And do what? And so prove to be my disciples. Somebody says, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but they've not reproduced. They're not even casting the net. How can they be a disciple? This is a staggering thought. And perhaps this causes anxiety in your heart to rise up, as it does mine. The proof of our discipleship is that we bear fruit. But I want to remind you of, of verse 19. We could could feel condemned by this passage and by piecing these two separate passages together, we we could feel condemned in this moment. I don't think that's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to hope and to peace. Look at verse 19 again. I will make. I will make. Make there in that verse number 19, it stands opposite from to be or the the were uh, there in verse 18. They were fishermen, their identity. This is who they were, right? This is their state of being. And Jesus is saying, I will change your state of being. I will make you a fisher of men. So as we become concerned and we say, well, if I'm not reproducing, if I'm not discipling, if I'm not evangelizing, how can I be a disciple? Listen, you're you're focusing on the wrong part. Remember the first point, the first thing that we talked about this morning, follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, what happens? He forms in us himself, and he makes us fishers of men. Only follow him. That's all we need to do. All we need to do is listen, to observe. Jesus is the one who will act. 
His promises will do it. Jesus is setting the agenda for their future, and he's choosing their profession, and then he's equipping them for it. Jesus told us that his life's mission in Luke chapter 19 was that the Son of Man come to seek and to save the lost. That's what he did. That that was his action plan. And if we are his disciples, that's how we'll summarize our lives as well. If we are his disciples... John 15 says, people will look from the outside and they will say, that dude's a disciple. That gal is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they seek and they save that which was lost. They are used to do these things by God himself. In the first century, one of the greatest compliments that you could receive was to have someone say that the dust of your rabbi was upon you. If I were to say that to you, you might be offended. Are you speaking of his dandruff? Or are, you, are you speaking of some mystical pixie dust that's, up, that's on me, that's some weirdness? No, it was a compliment because it was saying this. You're following your rabbi so close that when he steps on that Middle Eastern dusty path and he kicks up through the, the air being displaced under his feet, it kicks up dust and you're so close to be behind him that when you walk, it doesn't have a chance to settle. It's on the ground. It settles on you. The dust of your rabbi is upon you. May that be said of us. As folks look at us from the outside, other congregations, even those who are not believers, as they would look at Hagerstown Church and they would say, they they are a dirty people. They have the dust that Jesus has kicked up as he has beat the paths of Hagerstown back and forth. That dust is on them because they're seeking and saving that which was lost just like their rabbi. So that's the call this morning. Not to be overwhelmed or overcome with this desire to see folks who are lost, saved, and those who are young in the faith to be discipled and to be raised up. It's a secondary call. The primary call that we focus on this morning is that we follow Jesus. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you've referred to yourself as a Christian often, extend the same call virtue of the scriptures here, Jesus extending it through me, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, I, I can't honestly say that I'm a disciple. I've not followed Jesus, and I'm not following Jesus. Perhaps this morning you hear his call, his invitation extended to you, and you receive it. I'd love to chat with you about that. I'd love to talk after the service. Me, Pastor Tim, any, any number of folks in the service this morning would love to chat with you about what it would look like for you to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. I can say this. It is good news. That, it, that offer is being extended. That though you are sinful and though you have destroyed your life, whether it appears to be that way or not, the grace of God is extended to you and that if you'll repent of your sins and you'll trust Jesus, the work that he did on the cross, that, that grace that he banked will be exchanged to your account if you place your faith in Jesus' work. So that offer is for you this morning. And so if you are a disciple, would you follow him? Would 2019 be a year of you committing to follow him and not to be discouraged or distracted by all the other tasks that are secondary and tertiary that we would focus on following Jesus first and foremost? If you are lost, would you be found this morning? As we close, I, I want to ask you just to think about one thing. I ask you to set aside that bookmark 
top of the bookmark, it asks the question, who is your one? Ask yourself that. Who is my one? Your one is the person that God has sovereignly placed in your life for the purpose of them hearing the good news of Jesus Christ through you and trusting in him. So God has placed someone in your life, many people. This morning, we want to focus in on one. This month, we want to focus in on just one. We want to be intentional in looking and praying and seeking out who it is that God has placed in your life to hear the gospel through you. Who is he going to rescue through your fishing? As we begin the new year, I want to ask you to commit to identifying your one and pursue them in and with the gospel. I want to ask you, so even now, even as I'm speaking now, would you just take a moment, would you ask the Spirit of God to just place a name on, on your mind? Perhaps you already know it. For me, it wasn't difficult. Maybe you have to search it out. Maybe you have to dig through. Maybe you have to find some new people or or jump into some new circles. But no doubt there's somebody that the Lord has sovereignly placed in your life and said, I will make fruit. My disciple will bear fruit this year, and that fruit that will be born will be this person. So this year, follow Jesus. Pursue him personally via his word on a daily basis. If you're a disciple, recognize that he has chosen you and equipped you to be a fisher of men and then abandon everything under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Finally, ask God to help you identify one person that you can, under the help of the Holy Spirit, bring to faith in Christ this year. I'm going to give you this quote at the very end as we close. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman said this. When, he asked this question, when will the church learn this lesson? That preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something but someone. That someone is you. Who is your one? What would it look like if everyone here at Hagerstown Church did this? And asked God to give them one person they could bring to Jesus Christ. What would that look like if life groups began to pray and to speak about it? D groups began to pray and to speak about it. And if each one committed to reach one, what would it look like? God's plan for discipleship is not something, it's someone. Would you pray with me? God, that you would invite us to your table to share a meal. It's beyond us. But past that, that you would allow us to don your righteousness and in your name to go out and to work on your behalf. That we would be your fishermen. We receive this call this morning, humbly, knowing that it will be fulfilled through and by your power. In faith, we walk forward. Spirit of God, we pray that you would enlighten us this morning and that as we consider who it is that you've placed in our lives, that you would give us clarity in an uncanny way that we would see with beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are calling us clearly to preach the gospel, to share the gospel to an individual and may not stay there, but may begin in that place. God, may you be glorified. May we receive joy as a result and we ask these things in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and worship together.